Good morning. This morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of Psalms. It's found uh, beginning on page 650. Uh, This psalm is the uh, longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 uh, verses long. This psalm is broken into stanzas. There are 22 stanzas of eight verses each, and they are, each one begins with, uh, each verse in each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This morning, we will be starting with the ninth verse, reading through the 16th verse. But before we read, uh, please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this season of summer when we've had so much moisture, when we've had sunshiny days. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to remember to be thankful for all that we have, including this time of year, and most especially to be thankful for your word. Please open our hearts and minds at this time that we may understand your message for us in these passages of Scripture. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Once again, we're reading Psalm 119, starting with the ninth verse. How can a man, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You would turn with me, please, to uh, Philippians chapter 3. Going to read a little bit of jail mail from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Philippians 3, 1 through 16. Philippians 3, 1 through 16. That's page 1249 in your pew Bibles. Has anyone other than me ever tried something and you failed, and you failed so miserably that you didn't want anyone to ever know that you'd tried it? And you didn't want anyone to ever even see what it was, and you just wanted to quit and never even try it again. 
When uh, I was in seminary, I was helping uh, redo a bunch of apartments, so we'd end up with a bunch of scraps at the end of it and just kind of little knickknacks that you'd find. And I'd seen my brother do it plenty of times where we'd look at a pile of scraps and say, what do you want me to build? Build me a coffee table. Build the best coffee, coffee table you ever see. I thought, I can do that. So I grabbed a bunch of scraps and put them in my basement, started nailing stuff together and put some screws in here and uh, put this little piece over here. I ended up with this thing. I, I don't even know what to call it. It was, you know, the, there was kind of a pallet on the bottom and put some boards on the side and they weren't even. And somehow I had a drawer from a desk that was like hammered. I hammered it in there and put some stuff, put some hooks on the side. I mean, this thing was ugly. It was ugly. It was so bad and useless that uh, I, I didn't want anyone to know that I'd ever even tried to build something. So I put it down in the corner of my basement because I was too ashamed to take it out when pe- where people might see it and say, oh man, he did that? It was, it was that bad. In fact, I finally just waited until I could sneak out of the apartment at 3 a.m. so no one would see me. I could go out the back and get around and, and throw it away. And this thing was put together, I at least put it together well enough I couldn't just dismantle it. So I had this thing that I had tried, but after doing that, I didn't want to build again. I didn't want anyone to know I'd ever tried. I didn't want anything to do with that. I just was done. Well, the truth is we do that sometimes in our relationship with Christ, don't we? See, the Spirit's working inside our hearts, and He's bringing us to desire holiness, to be like Christ. But the problem is Jesus calls us to be perfect, He says that if you have hate in your heart, if you hate somebody, you may as well have murder in your heart. He says if you want what somebody else has, you may as well be a thief in here. He says that we have to forgive the people we don't want to forgive. We have to forgive the people that treat us wrong. He says that if we say we're going to do something or we're not going to do something, then we have to follow through. And then he ends all of this by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so here we are with this call to perfection, and yet we know we can't do it. But we're still trying to get there, but we fail. And we try and we fail. And sometimes we think we get it right, and then sometimes and a lot of times we fail. And it's easy, it's easy to begin to look at those things, look at what we do, And to either be pumping ourselves up and thinking, all right, God, I got this. Or to be taking a nosedive and to say, God, I can't do this. And I just, I'm done. I quit. Well, this is the same problem that the Philippians had. The same problem that they were facing was this risk of of losing sight of the sweetness of knowing Christ. And so Paul wrote them this letter, and, and part of this letter, there are passages going to address this problem. So he starts it off in verse 1, starts it off in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you as no trouble to me and is safe for you. He gives them first this charge, rejoice. Ah, what do I have to rejoice about? Rejoice in the Lord. And, you, and then here he goes on to the next thing. And this is where he starts his warning. I'll just tell you, I'll tell you real quick, the things that he's going to warn them about, he's going to say, there are a few things that aren't going to change Jesus' love for you. There are a few things that you can't use to bargain with God, and he's going to tell them what they are. The first thing he talks about is outward things, 
outward things. They don't change how Jesus feels about us. They don't make him love us. They don't give us a position to bargain with him. Paul says in in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's using pretty harsh language here to talk about those people that would come in and say, hey, look, this old way of doing things, that's the way you got to do it. And you have to have this, you have to wear this, you have to cut this off, you got to do this thing. And he's saying, that's not going to cut it. And for us, those outward things won't do it either. It's okay to drive a Mercedes. It's okay to drive a Nissan. It's okay to wear a suit to church. It's okay to wear jeans. These aren't the things that are going to make Jesus love us. These aren't things that we can use to bargain and position ourselves with God. We can't use our race or our background either. Paul says, starting in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That's a pretty tall claim. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's pointing back to his ethnicity. He's pointing to his background. It was in what he inherited. He was born into this. Yeah, you guys think you got something going? Look, I am from the tribe of Israel. I'm not one of these Gentile outsiders. I'm an, I'm an Israelite. And more than that, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a very important tribe in the history of Israel. And guys, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's saying. If you want to know what a follower of God should look like, look at me. That's what he's saying. But he's going to go on to say that it's worth nothing. Well, now we might not think we do that because, you know, probably very few of us in here have Jewish roots. Uh, you know, we don't talk of ourselves as Hebrews of Hebrews. And, you know, I, you know if I'm from a tribe, I don't know it. I, you know, I'm from all my history is all over the place. But do we ever find ourselves thinking that where we went to school makes us better? or the color of our skin, or the way we talk. Do we ever find ourselves thinking that these things make us better? Now, if you're from OU and I went to UT, you might say, yeah, yeah, I'm better. I went to OU, you went to UT, yeah. But we do these things. But really, it doesn't matter if I sound like I'm from Boston or if I'm from the Bronx. It doesn't matter if my first language is Spanish or Swahili or English. These aren't the things that make us like Jesus. These aren't the things that can help us position ourselves. We can't bargain with God because of where we're from or what language we speak or or what our background is or who our dad was or grandpa was. Those things aren't going to work. And he also says that observing the law won't do it either. He goes on to say that as to the law, he's a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is pointing himself, even with the law, he's saying, look, guys, I was a Pharisee. I was part of the most strict sect that there was. We made up laws to keep us from breaking God's laws so that if we broke our law, we at least didn't break God's law. He's saying, I had so much passion for God that I was persecuting Christians because those guys are blaspheming. He's saying that if anybody could call themselves blameless, it was him. But he goes on to say more. He's going to go on to, to show us that these things don't count. 
Now, unless we think that we don't do that, we don't have our laws that we follow, we don't have our things that we try and use in our relationship with God to make Him love us, make Him give us, make us have favor, we have to remember that, as one author says, that we might not say it, but sometimes the feeling starts to creep in that if I read the Bible a lot and I pray a lot, then when I have to give that presentation tomorrow, God, you might throw me a little something, right? It's good to come to church. It's good to pray. It's good to read our Bible. It's good to follow God's, it's good to follow God's law, but that's not what makes him love us. And Paul's making it clear that none of these things, the outward things, our background, our, our history, even our observance of the law, these aren't the things that really matter in our relationship with God. And so he goes on. In verse 7, he says, Whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is Paul. This is, this is a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is he had the most zeal. He followed the law. He could say, I'm blameless. But when it comes to Jesus and the sake of knowing Jesus and being found in Jesus, he says, all of this is rubbish. What is it? Who is this Jesus that can be so significant, so powerful, so amazing that everything that Paul's done, good or bad, counts for nothing when it comes to knowing him? says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He 
forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. Hallelujah. Just makes you want to stand up and, and shout. That, that's our king. See, Paul can say, all of this is rubbish. I will throw all of this out the door because he knows that this is his king. This is Jesus. This is the person he wants to know. It's so much better to know him than to have any of this stuff It's all stuff. It's so much better to know him than any position that we could have or anything we could do or any failure that we have. It's better. He is better. And that's what Paul is saying. And he goes on in verse 12 to say, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He knows he's not perfect. He says, I press on to make it my own. And then look what he says. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This king has made you his own. This king has a hold of you. So awesome, so powerful, so loving. This king has a hold of you, and he is taking you heavenward. Now, if I want to take my son from here to there, I can pick him up, and we're going to get there. He can fight it. He can kick. He can scream. He can bite. He's not really a biter, but he might try it. If we're going that way, we're going to get there. And Paul is saying, God has a hold of me. Jesus has a hold of me that way. But see, now, now that we know that this is true, now we have to do something about it. See, we could. We could kick and scream the whole way. We could fight. We could... We could do whatever we want to try and do to get out of there, to get some other way. He's not going to let us go. But wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better if we do what Paul's saying here? Press on to make it my own, to turn, stop the kicking and the fighting and screaming, and turn and hold on to Jesus who's holding on to us. And as we do that, 
and we begin to walk with Him, and He holds us and we hold Him back, then we begin to become like Him, and we begin to see who He is. We begin to know Him better. That's why Paul says in verse 13, starting in verse 13, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained Paul is saying, now, now that you let go of all that rubbish, all that, all that stuff that you thought was, was better, all that stuff you thought you could use, or all those things that you thought you did that were too much for him, now that you've let go of all that, now we can turn, we can hold on to Christ. And with Jesus holding us, now we can press on, now we can go toward, now we can start to look more like Jesus. So what do we need? What do we need here? Paul is forgetting what's behind. He's straining forward. He's pressing on to be more like Christ. That's what he means when he says, by any means possible, I attain the resurrection of the dead. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to get rid of all of that old dead life and live in new resurrection life. What do we need? What's going to help us forget what's behind and strain forward? I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord. I don't know what He's working on with you. Maybe you need accountability of of a men or women's Bible study or a prayer group. Maybe you need accountability on your computer or your phone. Maybe you need time in His Word, but you can't find regular time. Get an audio Bible. Put it on an MP3 player or something. Go go listen to it while you're exercising. Listen to it while you're driving. Get some time in His Word. Or maybe you need to get to know someone who's different than you, who thinks differently than you, so that you can come to understand them, and you can begin to love them the way Jesus loves them, and they can challenge you, and you can shape each other. Maybe you need some counseling. That's okay. We all need counseling. It's one of those truths about life. We all need counseling. I've been in counseling. My wife's been in counseling. We've been in counseling together. Everybody needs counseling. It's okay, because we want to say we will do anything, anything that we have to do to be like Jesus. Because when you know this king, and you know that this is the king who loves you and who holds you, who gave his life for you, don't you want to talk to him? Knowing that he delights in your prayers. Don't you want to read his word? Because it's the word from the God who loves us. Don't you want to be part of Christian community and invest in it? Because these are his people. Don't you want to invest in the lives of the lost? Because just like us, they are the ones that Jesus died to save. We serve a mighty, powerful, loving king who has hold of us and he won't let go. And the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts even now to change us, to make us more like him. So what happens? What do you think would happen if we commit together to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to respond to his love, to turn and to hold on to him as he's taking us toward heaven? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you've given us your spirit as well. Thank you that you care about our holiness more than even we do, and you are far more able to accomplish it. I pray that for each of us, for each of us, we would cooperate with your spirit and with your word and with your people as we come to know you more and more. Amen.